0: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Brian Hall, the president of Physician Resources Limited, a revenue cycle management firm based in Merrimack, New Hampshire. Brian was employee number one of PRL more than 30 years ago, and on his way to being the president and eventually the owner of PRL, he did everything from sweeping the floors to business development. In this podcast, we talk about Brian's career and what it's like to be an entrepreneur working in a family business. I hope you enjoy my interview with Brian, and if you do, won't you take a moment to leave us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be listening to this recording. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening, and here is Brian Hall. Welcome to the podcast, Brian.
1: Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here.
0: So normally I don't mention the date that we're talking on, but this is kind of unusual time. So today we're talking on April 3rd of 2020, and the world has kind of taken a hard left uh, as we have been hit by the COVID-19 coronavirus and so, don't usually mention that, but uh, and because we don't usually talk a lot about current events, but uh, but uh, I think you know it's appropriate today to talk a little bit about leadership in a time of crisis like this. So we'll get to that uh, as we go through uh, go through the chat today. But before we get to that, I, I want to kind of start with the the, the my kind of more standard approach, which is. Uh, I'd like to hear how you got to be president of Physician Resources Limited. So we were chatting a minute ago before we got started. You actually started in 1989. So tell me about how did you get involved with Physician Resources Limited?
1: Yeah, so the, so correct. I started in '89 part time, and interesting enough, at the time I was working a few different jobs. I grew up in a family of dairy farmers, so it was either get into the That's office and find an office job, or it was continue to be you know work on the dairy farm, right? And, and at oh, the time wow. I was doing both, and and a few other things, but. So I was attending UMass Lowell and, and the um, girl that I was dating at the time, f- her family had founded this, this, at the time, healthcare software business that evolved into a revenue cycle firm and they were looking for a little part-time help around the office and, and it was about a mile and a half or two miles from the, from the university, so it made, it made good sense for me. So I was going full-time, commuting to, to school and then I would work there either before classes or after classes. Um, you know, during the, you know, 89, 90, 91. And I was doing everything from sweeping floors to stuffing mail to, you know, to helping them, you know, clean out the stock room. So it was a, uh, it was an interesting time. So you really
0: started at the, at the bottom.
1: Uh, It did. Yeah. I tell you, it is funny. And and having been here now 30 years or a little over 30, I guess, 31 years technically. But um, I've, you know, one of the things that, and you'll see as we go through this, I've literally done every job you know, in the business at one point or another, which I think has helped in a lot in a a tremendous way, especially as as I rolled into the president's role.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine creates a lot of credibility for, with your employees, right? You've done everything from sweeping the floors on up. So that's, that's pretty cool. That doesn't, that you don't hear that very often. So, so you, you worked part-time for a few years and then uh, eventually started full-time. What, what made you decide, You know, this is uh, this is something I want to do full time.
1: You know, I had always grown up being around a lot of entrepreneurs. And one thing I did know and I don't you know is a lot of kids and come out of high school and you think you have to have your life figured out. Right. And I have this conversation. I have two boys. We have this conversation a lot. Is you don't, you know, you don't necessarily need to know what you, you want to do, right? And part of the one thing that I really was always intrigued by is being self-employed and small business. I, you know, growing up on a family dairy farm, I had uncles that are electricians that had their own businesses, landscapers, and various things. And during the time as we talk about mentors, I think at some point is, you know, my stepfather had owned his own machine shop and still does to this day. So I'd always seen these different, you know, independent businesses. So the one thing I did know is I wanted to be you know, wanted to either be in my own business or in a small business that I had a substantial impact, you know, where I saw a lot of my friends going into the corporate world. It definitely was one of those areas that never intrigued me. So I was paying my own way through school at UMass Lowell and obviously, you know, you know, commuting back and forth and And the opportunity rose. Their business started to grow a little bit. We had some conversations. The plan was for me to continue to go to night school, um, but eventually had the opportunity to jump in full time. It was really, you know, I think I was the first first or second i guess there's was maybe one other part time person that joined is the non you know, non ownership role um, employee so it was an interesting opportunity I, you know one of those things you didn't, i didn't think i'd be there 30 years that's for sure uh, yeah, yeah. And, so you're kind of employee number 1 i was you know, yeah, yeah yeah like full time right yeah well yeah the first paid employee i think is what it from that so it's kind of cool yeah so
0: so so the business was growing um, they brought you in And what were you doing, you know, kind of at the beginning uh, when you came in full time?
1: Yeah. And and revenue cycle today is a lot different than revenue cycle in 1990, you know, early 90s, right? And we'll talk, uh, you know, we'll get into that, I'm sure. But it was, so when I started, I was really what I, you know, today we call a billing clerk. I'm not even sure I really had a job description, quite frankly. (laughs) Back then in in a small, you know, bootstrapped company, um, there was three of us doing everything. But I was, you know, I was producing insurance claims. I was, which at that time was all paper um i was you know doing courier routes delivering stuff to physicians offices that they were working with helping them set up computers it was you know various different job duties at that time but you know from a if i looked at it today a lot of what i did would be what we'd consider kind of a, a an rcm entry level position all
0: right so um this was back in 91 92 time frame it is, yeah. so i know that, and that's actually you know kind of the same time frame for me i uh, uh So I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I joined the army in 92 and became a uh, was a medical service corps officer. And my first job was working in practice management. Mm -hmm. So the funny thing, as I look back on that is working in a clinic, um, there was exactly one computer in the entire clinic Mm -hmm. and it was the secretary's. And she basically did word processing on it. So, you know, you said that the company started as a as a software company and kind of evolved into this into this more RCM uh, function. So what did PRL look like? You said three employees at that point. What were they, what had they been doing and how did they evolve into this more, you know, into the role? I guess, what did RCM look like at that
1: time? Yeah, so I'll, I'll back it up a little bit. We st- So when I came on, their primary function was a, they were a New England distributor for reseller for a software company out of Seattle, Washington. So this company okay. called a practice partner. Um, Andy Uri is the founder. We still keep in touch with him. He was a he was a primary care physician out of Seattle, Washington, that had developed in the early 80s one of the first EMRs and oh, management okay. systems. So it was it was all DOS-based. It was, you know, incredibly primitive by today's terms. But so um, they had, you know, more or less stumbled on him. My father-in-law had was an air traffic controller and ended up being unemployed during the Reagan years and was looking for something new and, and new health, and they always enjoyed health care. My mother-in-law at the time who was the other founder was working in orthopedic practices. So they they more or less stumbled on this this company out of Seattle that was looking for a New England dealer. They, you know, you know scrapped the money together and bought the New England dealers, you know, dealership rights. So when I joined, the primary focus was selling primary focus was selling software to independent, you know, small physician practices, you know, small to medium, maybe up to 20 docs at the time. So a lot of when I when when I joined was a lot tied to that, but the other part is a lot of the sites they were selling the software to realized they couldn't manage the billing piece of it as it was getting more complex in the '90s. And you know, our, you know, when billing in the '80s was you know pretty straightforward, right? You submit the claim in, you actually got paid, right? A little different than the, than the environment we live in today. And what was happening is that was getting more and more complex. You know, more regulations. This is before pre HIPAA, but there was still stuff starting to pop up around electronic claims and so on. So A couple of the sites came back to to the company and said, look, we we love the software. Things are going great in the office, but we need help managing the billing piece. So what ended up happening is they took on a couple of sites, one orthopedic practice, and and I think the other one was a a GI practice in Massachusetts that they were going to temporarily help them get their billing in order. You know, And then 30 years later, one of the practices was still there, but it's still you know, just retired, actually. Um, but it, it, so it was it was something where they said, OK, yeah, we'll help you out. We, we understand how to flow. And I came in to help you know, bridge that gap. And then they realized during this that, hey, this is a pretty interesting model. And during the 80s, a lot of companies were starting to spring up. Right. This is pre the big guys, you know, the, the Athenas and the GEs of the world and the large competitors that we see out there, but in um, you know in Optum now. But it was but there was a lot of kind of mom and pop springing up in this industry. And that was really kind of the beginning of you know where you saw a rep cycle and then it just completely expanded from there. So when I joined it was it was a lot of software related and then I was supporting the RCM side probably half the time. And then that continually, you know, and then we took on a third client and a fourth client and then eventually the RCM became the core focus and they got out of the software business entirely. Uh, I think okay. in the 90s actually. So
0: you kind of eventually had the role of, of billing manager as kind of your, your first formal, I guess, formal role. So the firm was growing, I assume you continued to grow. And-
1: it was, and it was slowly growing. they, you know, I, they, again, being in and being a private business, they did they did the investing, you know, grew the business themselves with their own capital. So it was a it was a slow burn to grow it, which I, I think was the right right way to grow it. But, yeah, it was the rev cycle business was growing. I, you know, if I started as a billing clerk, I moved into what we we'll call a billing manager, which means they ultimately I'd have a chunk of clients I was responsible for. So, you know, I, I think at the time I maybe had when I took that role, two people reporting to me, part of the team. Maybe. Yeah, there's was two at the time. And ultimately we had all we were responsible for all aspects of billing. So from from the charge entry piece coding at the time, I C D nine coding, mm. and CPT was still there. And from and then we would produce the claims. And at that point, some claims were produced on the system, some claims we were actually typing on HICFAs, you know, type you the old school typewriters. Still one of the best classes I ever took in high school because I can still out type you know, one of my, uh, my typing skills have been, uh, been honed over the years and I'll credit to the forms of the nineties. The but, um, so we, you know, so we were responsible for all of that. And then we'd also be responsible for taking obviously the payments and posting the payments, billing, you know, reducing statements to the, to the patient. So we ultimately in the old days, we handled the whole aspect of it, right? We all, we, here we call it old school billing, right? We did all yeah. of it. Um, very different than it is today, but it, you really did all aspects of it. And I was responsible for at that time I think I had four or five clients. They brought somebody else in um, that was handling the other two or three clients, I think, at the time. I think we were maybe up to eight eight clients, somewhere in that range. All
0: right. So you eventually, the, you got promoted up to be director of RCM operations. So I guess the firm had grown some at that point, and you continued to mature kind of in your skills.
1: Yeah, I think I was maturing. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. I still, I think, you know, at that time I was probably in my late twenties, right? That was, I recall correctly, but the, yeah. So the company you had started in Lowell, we had now moved to Merrimack, New Hampshire, uh, different location than we're in today. We're in, this is round two in Merrimack for us. Um, And we were in a new space in Merrimack and actually, you know, we only spent about a year there because we were actively looking for a new building and we bought um, about a 12,000 square foot building in Amherst about a year later. But Oh, so we moved to Merrimack. At that time we had grown enough, and I, you know, they needed my the owners were primarily focused on sales and business development and client relations, right? And they were ultimately the ones responsible for presenting to the clients monthly and dealing all that. And then I was focused on the internal day-to-day operations, you know, making sure everything got done, making sure the trains ran on time, right? And that was the the key of that piece. Um, I did, you know, and obviously was also responsible for that point for hiring. Um, developing the staff and, and, and continuing to build the team when we brought on new clients.
0: So were you primarily, so this is a growing business. So what I'm hearing is two owners, kind of you, and then you were running kind of the, the back office. So they were out generating the leads and, and working with the clients and you were kind of running the, the, the actual operations. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: And, And being a small business, I was one, you know, I was the only, the one, you know, I guess you could call senior leader at that point, right. Reporting directly to the ownership. Um, yeah. and I, you know, it's, you know, we were up in double digits of employees at that point. I don't know if it was 10, 15, but it was close. But, um, but yeah, I ultimately, I was responsible to make sure everything got done and we delivered and, and payments got posted and so on and so forth.
0: How did you discover you like this stuff? I mean, so you were, I mean, you'd kind of been in it at that point, you've been in it for a few years, you know, what point did you kind of say, oh, this is kind of cool. I like this. I like the operations. I like the accounting.
1: Yeah, it is interesting because I, you know, revenue cycle and I still, and I joke with my family, I'm not sure my kids understood what I did until about a year ago and they're 18 and 19. I'm not sure my wife understood exactly what, what, what her, what the business did, but because it is, you know, it's an interesting industry and you don't, and you don't really know about it. Right. I mean, I think now you start to learn about it at school, but when I, you know, in in the nineties and even in the eighties, nobody knew what RCM was, right? I don't think it really, you know, we call it medical billing, but even then I think everybody just assumed you went to the doctor and the doctor got paid. So it was, it was interesting enough is the, is, you know, I'm, I'm a numbers guy and I like numbers in the RCM, but the other part for me was really just the idea of growing an independent business, right? I think it was the, the, the nuances of a business, the, you know, being involved in various parts of it and really understanding, you know, seeing the, the, the hard work and, and the development and the pieces needed to grow business intrigued me. The, you know, I think the healthcare piece grew on me. Right. I think and in, in I talked to a lot of my colleagues about it, right. That have gone into healthcare kind of by accident or on purpose and then come out and then realize how much they really love healthcare. Right. And as you get more into RCM, it, be, it gets in your blood. And I think part of what, you know, our, our mission here and, and, and what grew on me, I think, as I went through the process in the nineties and, and in the two thousands was the, the ability for us to actually help providers. A lot of these providers that we were servicing at the time were independent, you know, entrepreneurs trying to run their own business and see patients. And the flip side is we, you know, we, we, I saw that we were reducing costs. So I'm looking at healthcare We're say, you know, even, even back then healthcare was a big cost and continuing to grow. We were able to do it more efficiently, do it for less, ease the pain of the providers worrying about what was going on every day in their office from an administrative standpoint. So that part really, you know, I saw the need for it and, and, you know, I think really got me excited about it, and then the flip side was just I, I loved running a business, and if and it, you know, and, and going back a little bit, even before I when I was working here part time, I had looked at, you know, it, you know potentially I, you know, I, I had a grandfather who mentored me a lot, who was a he ran he owned the dairy farm, but he also had a bunch of side businesses, and we had talked about starting a landscaping business together. We had talked about looking at buying a franchise, so I had always wanted that that piece of being independent. Um, yeah. that was a part for me that really intrigued me about the business. And then as you get into healthcare, you realize, wait, Hey, you are making a difference, right? I'm not saving patients' lives and we're not as a business, but we are really helping these providers. And, in flip side is I think we're, you know, reducing costs and some of the things that go with it that I think really had a good, you know, a substantial positive impact on the healthcare community.
0: So I'm curious. So you said you went from, you know, you were basically managing two people at one point to you said, you know, at this point, you're kind of managing double digits people. So one of the things I like for this, particularly for this podcast is, you know, young people listening to this, thinking about moving into leadership roles and kind of growing as a leader. How what was that like going from and kind of and I would say, let me preface this by kind of my thought here is if you had been in a big corporate setting, you'd have lots of infrastructure to kind of yeah. tell you, support you and, you know, like, this is how you become a, you know, a, a supervisor and this is how you become a second line supervisor. You're kind of there. You're like the guy, right? right? And I, I don't know how much background your your owners had in, in kind of leading large organizations, but you're, and, and 20 people is not a large organization, but it's not you know, it's not two people, it's, right. it's, it's a, you know, it, it, there is a different skill set as you kind of grad, you know, increase both the number and layers. So yeah. what was that like kind of making that transition for
1: you? Yeah, it's difficult. And I, and I think there's a couple of things, everybody wants to get into management sometimes until you get into management. Right. And, <laughs> right. Uh, I think there, you know, it, it's and to your point, I think what, you know, what's different in a small entrepreneurial business like that is there's not a lot of structure. And yeah. fortunately enough we've been able to build it, you know, now that we've grown a, a ton, but you have to, it's a different environment. There's no formal training process on here's how to be a here's how to manage, here's how to do a review, right? There's things you have to learn on your own. And it was a, for me, it was a difficult, you know, and there's a lot of lessons you learn. It was a difficult transition for me, right? You you go from being an individual contributor that you can kind of grind through and get your work done, right? I, I know if I, I could work, if I had to work seven days a week, I could still get my work done, right? And you can work long hours. That doesn't work when you when. And from a management standpoint, it's it's more about you know mentoring and planning and time management and delegation and all the pieces that you don't learn as an individual contributor. Um, so it was a, definitely without question. I mean, there's and if we get a chance, we'll talk about. I mean, there's you know there's more failures and successes early on in those roles, right? And I think that's a part of any any leader's development anyway. But it was it it, it was challenging, and I spent a lot of time. You know, I had the, the the fortunate at the time again I had a stepfather running his own business that had a similar size group of employees. I had a grandfather that was running a couple of different businesses that I could bounce ideas off. Um, and then my you know and then a lot of it was you know and then my mother-in-law who was the most active part of the business had run pra- practices on a smaller scale, but at least we were able to to bounce ideas off of each other. I had friends that worked for a large companies, so it was a lot of you know, the one thing I always. I wish I did more of then that I do a lot now is, and I think a lot of young people are getting better at it is developing that network and not being, you know, putting his pride aside and not being afraid to call somebody and say, Hey, I got a problem and I have no idea how to deal with it. Right. When you're 25, 26, 27, that's probably a harder proposition than it is when you, when you're 50. But uh, but I think that that to me, I was fortunate that they, you, one of the things that we, we do this here is, you, know, you got to let people make mistakes and, and and figure it out a lot of times on their own to a point. And I think if they're not, if you're not, if you're not, uh, if you're not failing regularly, you're not trying hard enough is, is kind of my, my stance on it. So yeah, it, okay. it took a lot of, took a lot of uh, a lot of energy. It took a lot, you know, I spent a lot of time I was doing some, you know, I, I took a couple of classes. I actually at the time, took some management classes at Riviera university at night just to, to, uh, you know, to help, you know, get through some, through some of the, you know, kind of expand my knowledge at the time. There wasn't a lot of online school nowadays. I can, you know, I can get podcasts, I can get anything I want. Right. Yeah, right. There's so many resources. And at the time there was harder, right. It was either go to school or was find, you know, find mentors or whatever, whatever was available. So it was a lot, it was, it's, it's challenging. And it's a different, and I tell that to my young managers here and I to go through our, our, our leaders as we go through it is you have to, there's a different skill set. So just, and I think a lot of companies and I trust me, I made the mistake of, uh, several times over the years is promoting someone just because they're a great person and a great, great individual contributor. You put them in a management role. It's a whole different mindset. And it took me, it took me a good, I think, three years to really get comfortable with it. And you're never fully, I mean, you're always obviously developing every day, but it was, it took a, yeah, I'd say it probably took, if I you remember back about three years and I made you make some substantial mistakes, right? There's people I probably could have kept that could have grown with the business. If I would have managed it, managed that relationship better. Right. And I think that, yeah. A bit so, yeah.
0: Another, I guess, so related question is you have gone through the growth cycle of this business. So from, from the very kind of the most earliest stages to a point where you've got a fairly substantial business now, and that process you mentioned of formalization is it's pretty well documented in, in the, you know, in the business literature, but I, I'm curious to hear how, how, what was it like as you had to formalize, right? Perhaps I, I assume you have like formal evaluations now maybe, but you didn't, I assume back no, in the day.
1: Right. Yeah. So, it, you know, and I, we always did and, and a lot of, you know, one of the things I've been fortunate of, you know, is a lot of my core leadership has all been here. There's a couple of them that have been here 20 plus years in a large chunk of them have been here north of 15 years so we always you know we have our weekly leadership meetings and in and, and so on we always joke about we're, we've become a real business right so we you know not that we weren't a real business before and i never right. think anything it right, is interesting you have to from we you talk about how HIPAA impacted us and, and i think hopefully we'll, we'll talk about that but just the the hr pieces that you had to put in and the processes around reviews and formal formal development plans and professional development and, and it it's it's an ongoing process, obviously, for any business. But um, we had a period where you get you go from you know two employees to twenty or twenty five. There's a bunch of policies that you need to put in relatively quickly to be able to make sure that you're compliant and you're more importantly, I think, supporting the staff. That's the key piece and giving them the the ability to grow and do the right pieces. So it was it was a lot of bringing in outside. We brought you know had outside consultants help us. We hired some skill sets. HR management, HR consultants, finances—the other piece, right? For me, that as you get to that point, you actually have to start keeping real budgets and 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 maintaining your financials at a different different level than you do when there's when there's you know a, you have five or six employees it changes things quite a bit. So yeah, we rely on a lot of a lot of outside outside services, um, and then it was a lot of just you know, finding the right talent. My uh, director of of uh, client or uh, employee engagement and culture actually came in as an, it, she had started with us about 18 years ago in an admin role. She was also doing the HR piece as part of that admin role, right? So she's evolved as well, the, long, the same role and, and, um, and really, you know, taking it to a whole other level in the last three or four years, which has been awesome.
0: This is kind of still the nineties. So we're talking, we're still, so we're still talking in the nineties. That was a, uh, so I, I, I shared my story of my uh, first clinic with one computer, but the, but, and, 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 Kids listening to this today can't probably, you know, because they've a computer in their pocket all the time. Can't even imagine. I mean, like, I, and like, like I said, that one computer wasn't even connected to a network. We didn't know what a network was, really. You know, like, but by the end of the '90s, we were, you know, we were, we were moving fast in terms of uh, uh, in terms of, of the deployment of, of automation throughout pretty much every industry. How did that impact? How did that impact? Kind of your business, its growth. Um, how you did things back then?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. And to your point, we our first computer was a compact that was portable. But when you say portable, it was on a set of on a wheeled dolly that just needed <laughs> us to move. Right, that was the first computer yeah. I worked on. Flipped out keyboard, um, and then so the late '90s, we would have you know, we would would have moved into Amherst into our new space, and we at the time it was you know our technology we thought we were cutting edge. We brought in a Novell network specialist, right? So we had. A server in the closet, more or less, and, and a server room. But you know, we'll call it, it was a. We called it the server room. It was a closet, and you know, we had started to actually network um, a bunch of what we called dumb terminals at the time. Right? I think they were in a. Yep. I don't think Dell was making them, but there was somebody similar that was pump, pumping them out. So we had obviously started to develop the network. The biggest thing, and I think the biggest change during that time, was electronic claims and electronic payments. Right. So I think what. You know, the really what affected us was the move from paper hikfas and really a paper-driven environment where you were submitting paper claims, you're receiving paper checks, um, you're receiving paper um, remits or explanation of benefits, and so on. And and so really, what that that started to jumpstart the industry, right? Because physicians' practices weren't prepared for the uh, the advancements in technology. And I know you know in, in this area in particular you know, the Medicaid and Medicare plans were now accepting discs, right? You would submit a tape of your claims. They would pay, oh, wow. and then they'd send the tape back to you and the tape would have all the explanation of benefits on it. So it was a so it was electronic, but it was kind of hokey electronic, right? So and <laughs> you think about it, in a physician's practice, most of them didn't have the capability. This was before 855s and everything, but there was still a standardized format. So that actually helped the growth of our business. And, in, and I think that's a common theme is, a lot Of these regulations come along, is a lot of physicians and practices and hospitals and, and and surgery centers, whatever it might be, have a hard time keeping up with the regulations. So, the same thing was true in the 90s. So, one was the technology, and then the other part was a lot of the regulations and claim submitting and submission formats. So, that pushed our growth. We, you know, I think went through a pretty big growth spurt late 90s, early 2000s, um, and it was changing how we did things. I mean, you were still not very automated, but you, were, everybody was not, they, that was pre. EHR adoption, so so physicians' offices were still using paper encounter forms. They'd send you a paper encounter form. We we keyed into the to the system at the time, which was still the practice partner system, and then we'd create digital claims, right? And that was only acceptable at the time: Medicare, Medicaid, maybe Blue Shield. Everything else was still paper hickfus. But it but it continued to push the growth, and the and, and it was think made made our lives in a lot of cases from a billing standpoint cleaner once we get the, the the digital pieces of the claim submission down but it really made it i think more difficult on practices and that's where they pushed out were more outsourcing friendly
0: and that's actually what i was going to make so it sounds like this change actually played strategically into kind of in to, to support organizations like yours yeah. to make it really a, it, it you it, it created an opportunity for you to add value to the to the physician practices because they didn't have the, they didn't have the, the uh, organic uh, capability.
1: Correct. Yeah. Without question. And it was and the next iteration of that was, was HIPAA as it came through, but it really allowed us to one is to, most of them realized, and and I still, it was, it was amazing how many physicians even have computers back then, right? I mean, there was still practice, right. nothing, paper scheduling books. And this went on for, you know, not for another you know decade probably, but so they, there was no way they were going to be able to submit electronic claims to Medicaid or Medicare. So it, it really, really pushed our growth, which was nice.
0: So you mentioned HIPAA. Hmm. So that's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And that was passed in 19... 19- Ninety-six. So, probably most people have heard HIPAA. So, talk about what is, what was HIPAA, and uh, what is HIPAA, and uh, how did it impact your business?
1: Yeah. So, at the time. Um, One of the things that happened in our industry was the formation of the healthcare billing and management association. So the HBMA is really the only trade organization that works with billing services, you know, obviously that's specifically for medical billing and RCM, obviously you got HFMA and others too, but, and they had, that they, they had started, I actually think they were called the international billing association at the time, but part, they started right around the time that HIPAA came out. And so, so HIPAA had a huge, initially didn't have much of an impact on us, right? I think it got passed in 96, but most of the adoption came later. So really not a much of I would say little to no impact in the the late 90s. You know, we did do some policy changes. You obviously your compliance plans and your HIPAA compliance plans we developed, but um, which are completely different today, but it really started to have a push, you know, into the, I think early 2000s when a lot of the, the regulations came due and providers were forced to follow HIPAA regs which, again, pushed, I think, the technology piece, right? This is where people wanted to get away from paper claims, get away from from the paper process. And, and the EHRs were coming out of it, too. But it similar scenario, it, it definitely forced us to tighten up some things, right? We had to get better at privacy. We had to get better at security, both physically and, you know, technology-wise. And, you know, make sure that we were proactively auditing ourselves and external audits. But in turn, again, it was another thing that providers just didn't, as healthcare reimbursements were were changing and regulations on providers the more they got regulated and more they had to understand that a lot again a lot of these smaller practices didn't have the bandwidth didn't have the knowledge and and again it helped it helped outsourcing and and i think all of these you'll see is is the evolution of where we're at today but it really had the same impact i would say as, as some of the other technology advances over the years you know electronic claims different but similar in a lot of ways from an outsourcing standpoint
0: so early 2000s, your title changes to Senior Vice President of Client Services. Yeah. So how, how, how did that reflect the growth of the business and kind of what you were doing?
1: Yeah, and, and I think this was a role that was was a, was a, a you know, an interesting change for me because internally, historically, for the pro, you know, prior 10 or so years, I had been primarily operations. So this took me to the outside, right? So now I am—I had some business development responsibility, but most of my responsibility was tied to, you know, keeping clients happy, right? Client relations, making sure they're getting the service level they need. Working, we had brought somebody in to help run operations internally, and really allowed me to focus on that net, networking piece with the clients, development of the clients, presenting financials, and so on. And this is always, you know, there's my first meeting. When I rolled into this role, uh, and at the time, my my now mother-in-law, well, she was my mother-in-law then, I guess, too, but was doing a lot of the operational work as well. She had stepped into some of the operational stuff and allowed me to focus on this piece. But it was interesting because you, you know, it was my first experience sitting in front of clients. In that time, we had some fairly, for back then, larger practices, 10, 12, 15 docs. And it, it was, uh, I always tell the story, is my first meeting was at Kearney Hospital in, in Dorchester, and I still remember to this day, and I remember the, the the senior doc who has since passed, but large primary care practice, and we weren't performing at the level we should have been. So my first meeting ever with a client was, and in the time we probably, I think we maybe had 30 employees, something like that. So we were bigger, but not huge. And I sat in that meeting and and thought I was prepared. I wasn't prepared. And I, you know, and it was an interesting challenge. It was, it was something to this day. I remember, and I use the story when I talk to a lot of my, you know, my account managers here that go in and have, because you have bad meetings, right? When you're in client services, it's the nature of what you do. Thankfully we don't have a lot of them, which is great, but yeah, it was an interesting change for me because now I'm all client facing I'm dealing with, you know, keeping the clients happy. And And it allowed me to see everything from a different perspective. Right, you, you sit in operations, especially in a small business, and you're not getting the chance to get out in front of the customers. And it's something we stress today, more importantly now than ever, is you, you kind of get in your own little tunnel, right? You're doing everything operationally you think is the right way to do it, but you're not you know, not fully understanding the impact on the client. And I think that when you talk about my role today, having, the, having had the opportunity to run operations for a long time and then sit in a, in a client-facing role for a long time, I've seen both perspectives and you know, sometimes they have conflicting or, or competing priorities, and I think that was a huge. I think part of the reason I think we're so successful with our clients now is we view it the way it allowed me to view it from a you know a little different perspective. Um, yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, I was a you know the, the title sounds good. I was SVP of Client Services, but I was the only one. Right? <laughs> so I, I was at that time. I wasn't managing any people. Okay. Because it was just me, right? I mean, at the time, I think we, I can't remember what we had for clients, but I may have had maybe 18, something like that. I think clients, okay. but I was ultimately, you know, even though I had a, a senior VP role, it was more of an individual, back to being an individual computer, co- contributor role, come back and work with the management team and say, Hey, here's what I, you know, Dr. Jones's practice is experiencing. How can we help mitigate that? Right.
0: So you said that your your mother-in-law one of the owners decided to move more into the operational role. So this was was this like a trade-off between the two of you? Like a little bit. She wanted yeah, to yeah. come back to operations and you and give you the opportunity to do the client-facing portion. It
1: was. Yeah, we you know, we it, it was a it was an opportunity for me to develop my skill set and mm-hmm. um, and partially she enjoyed the operations piece more than the client piece, right? So it gave me a chance so we we ultimately I think at that time almost completely flipped roles.
0: So. Was that an intentional decision on her part to develop you for potentially taking leadership later on? Yeah,
1: hundred percent. And it's and again, you know, similar to what you see in a, in a large company, right? You do, you know, if I, a good buddy of mine works for a large pharmaceutical, and he's done probably twelve different roles to prepare him for his for his you know his career path, right? And that was really the key piece. One thing they were uh, always great with several things, but one of the things is allowing me to develop, right, and get into these different roles. And I think. The, the intent was at that point, I've now been with the business, you know, 15 years, give or take something like that, 12, you know, 13 years, i had envisioned staying there long-term at that point, right? That um, I think it'd be 30 years? Who knows? But, uh, but yeah, they, the intent of the, the switch um, was to groom me and to help me, you know, learn different skill sets. And we use, and I use that technique to this day with our staff here
0: so you went into that first meeting with the doctor in dorchester you said you you, you weren't prepared so right. tell us a little bit about what's that you know what's that uh what was it you learned from that encounter like what was how did you how were you not prepared and and kind of what did you learn and, and how, how does that how is that shaped you said you you've taken that experience and you know share it so what was it you learned about about being prepared and,
1: and yeah i think a couple of things one is i i really you know everybody in those situations, you, know, you, you got to realize everybody's human and they're all trying to run their own business, right? So it, it's never personal. But the biggest thing I learned is making sure when you're presenting the data, make sure you understand all the pieces of the data, right? Um, and that okay. is the key part for me is, is there's in, in healthcare, and I'm sure it's in every business, but in the RCM world, we're dealing with a lot of complex individual pieces, right? Maybe in a primary care practice, a little more standard, but you go into an orthopedic practice. They're going to want to have you, under, you know, understand how they're getting paid for shoulder surgeries, how they're getting paid for the knee scopes, what's happening with their total joints. How's their office? How is the, the office volume impacting their revenue? Right. All these kind of core details. And and this primary care group was a little more complex. They had their own laboratory. They actually had their own X-ray at the time. So they wanted some details that I wasn't prepared to give. And, and they weren't overly thrilled that I didn't wasn't prepared to give those details. So it was it was a little bit. It was a little bit of learning that piece. And that's where, you know, what we, we role play now and ask our staff to say, hey, first time you got to go present to a client, why don't you present to the leadership group first or some of your peers and let's go through it. You know, I didn't have that opportunity back, you know, then, right. And, and, yeah. and it would have you know, helped us all, but it was a, um, I like learning on the job anyway. And that was definitely an on the job experience, really <laughs> a question, but uh, yeah, it was really just about knowing the numbers and, 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 and getting the ability to make sure that you can, if you Understand if you don't, you can't answer their question then. Make sure that you at least have an understanding of the, you know, and, and set the, you know, the expectations so you'll get back at a timely and- Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I, I have briefed a lot of doctors in my time. So I know, you know, they're data people. They they like their data and they will dig into it. And, yeah, it's part of how they kind of sniff out whether you're competent or not. They, you know,
1: yeah, big on it. All right. I don't know it better than they do. That's That's uh, our philosophy here now is making sure that's how – we've been fortunate to have great client retention. And part of that is because we, one is we, we know the data, we know how to, what, what information they really need to understand without giving them way too much data. That's overwhelming. Right. Right. And two, we also, you know, if we don't know it, we own it and we figure it out. Right. I mean, that's the other right. thing that's important. So. so in
0: 2007, you were promoted to be president. So yeah. what was the decision process there? So you have the owners, uh, you'd kind of traded roles with your mother-in-law. She had decided to come back to operations What was the decision within the business that, that they needed a, 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 that they needed a president and that you were ready for it?
1: Yeah. So a couple of things influenced it. One is I also became a partner at that time. So I had bought into the business. So, you know, they were looking to start to transition the business at the same time. Right. And, and at that point they were still fairly young, but they built a fairly, you know, very successful business. The options were going to be, you know, do they, do they sell it internally right to their, to their now time son-in-law and my mother and my wife who's also an owner in the business didn't didn't never really work in the business other than doing some basic administrative functions she was a school teacher so she was off doing her own thing uh, which was great and so they we were beginning to talk about the transition phase what's next right they're thinking about retirement and do they sell the business do i take it over and so on so i ultimately with some help from them purchased I think at the time i purchased 20 percent of the business and at that time they also said look you know i I think proven myself enough over the years, I had different visions for the bit, you know, we were, they were, they wanted to keep a stable business and, and, and people use the term lifestyle business. I think it was maybe a little more than a lifestyle business. And I, and at the time we talked about me pushing growth and trying to really take the business, you know, to some different levels. Right. And that's the part that challenged me. And, and if you ask anybody I work with, so it's always about the next, you know, what can we do to get to the next level? Right. I, it's, it's about challenging ourselves and growing the business. And that's what I was, you know, at the time we were going through and, and, they ultimately said they were very, uh, very willing to let me take the reins. And again, I'd proven myself for 17 years at that point. Right. So, so they knew what they were getting at that point. I, I didn't see any point, any, any idea that I was going to leave the business. Right. I wanted to own my own business and this was my best opportunity to own my own business. Um, I, I'd grown to love RCM, even though it's, it's not the most exciting topic when you, when you talk about it, but it's, it's kind of a cool, really cool industry and, and, you know, it's. And uh, so, yeah, so it was, it was a little bit of a transition plan. It was my chance to, to, to get some ownership in the business and take, and take it from there.
0: How would you say your previous assignments had prepared you for that role? And, and, and why was it, you know, why was it appropriate to, for them to sell internally to, to, to promote you as opposed to say selling it? And maybe allowing somebody else to bring in their own management.
1: Team. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think, quite frankly, they would have been, from a financial standpoint, they probably would have been better off, you know, from a financial standpoint, selling it externally, right? I think, yeah. you know, um, I got the, you know, the family and friends discount. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it, it, so two things I would say my, the, the jobs I had done prepared me, you know, and I don't ever take it lightly. And again, I still talk about it to this day with, the, with all the employees we have about the fact that I've been able to see every role. And there are times, I mean, I, you know even today I'll go sit in the call center and take patient calls right just so I understand what's going on and and I think you know I did it for a week last year'll and at some point I'll do it again this year but it just lets me having all those different experiences allowed me to understand all the impact on the business right good and good and bad but you get to see all aspects so my a lot of the failures I had had from a management standpoint definitely prepared me for for a bigger role without question but the other part was you know, I knew I knew what happened if you posted a payment wrong I knew what happened if you didn't take a patient's call and, and solve their problem I knew what happened if you didn't deliver to the client timely right so I I had a, a, a good understanding of all aspects of the business except for the technology side that was one area that I you know I made sure I, we hired correctly and brought in the right people because I, I knew what we needed from a technology standpoint but I was never that if you look at my resume that's one role I never did and never had and that was a part of my my my, uh, my brain doesn't function that way. So I've never get into to, to the technology side. I have a hard time using my smartphone. but so yeah, so I think you know the, having the diversity and having all of that um, diversity in my, in my work history really prepped me well for 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 leading the organization at that time, which at the time was about 25% of the size it is today. so
0: Oh okay. So how big was it? roughly?
1: Yeah, I think we you know at the time we were we were probably, I think if I recall, we were doing about million eight in revenue, something in that range. And we had maybe I think thirty clients, something in that size, and probably similar size employees. It was almost a one-to-one ratio, I think, at that time, give or take. From a client standpoint, some bigger clients. But um, yeah, but similar. I think that's what we were. So kind of fast forwarding
0: now, I guess. How active are your are, are, are you still partners with the, with your, with the founders? Are they still involved with the business or?
1: So they are not, they have, you know, they, they actually retired more or less. My So my mother-in-law still does a little bit of work just from a compliance standpoint for us, but they retired 10 years ago. Yeah. So, okay. they, so it was, it was a pretty quick transition. Okay. <laughs> Over in 07 as a partner, they, they both my father-in-law retired a little bit earlier, but I think it was about yeah, about 2000, yeah, 2010, something like that. You know, they've been okay. 2011. So, but they're still. And then we took over complete ownership in the last three years. So I, we had slowly bought majority ownership, and my wife obviously owns a chunk of it now too. But we, we, my wife and I own the business out outright. But we had owned the majority for the last, I think, the last ten years. It all blurs, but yeah. Right. So. So
0: you are the, you and your wife are the co-owners of the business now. So you don't have a, a, a another entity, a board or, a, or, a, um, no. or, or other owners who you're reporting to. This is, this is, you're the president and you're the owner.
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: Okay. So uh, being a privately held company, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that?
1: Yeah. It, so it, it, it is interesting. So the, the, and I, and we, we've always been committed to being independent. And I think for a couple of reasons, we like being independent. And I think the biggest advantage is you're, you, 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 you're responsible to your, your employees, your, yourself, and your clients, right? You're not, you're not responsible to stockholders and private equity and so on. So it gives you a, a little different, I think a little different view of, of, of your market there. You know, I think that allows us to be super flexible, you know, we still have an a, a board that we, an advisory board is, you know, really not a, not a uh, oversight board, but so people that we have that we can bounce ideas off of and give us, you know, give us guidance on it, on the business. But it, it is interesting because, you know, I think as a privately held, we we're responsible to our clients. We can make, you know, we can be super nimble and, and really adjust and pivot when we need to quickly and make decisions quick. I think the disadvantage, the biggest disadvantage that I've seen is we've grown the business and, and. And actually, you know, we're, we're actually about six times our size. So I take that today that we were, you know, in 2007, but growing the business without having outside capital is, is challenging, right? So we fund the business growth with our own revenue. So it means we're going to grow slower means we're going to have some additional challenges and we're going to have to do things a little differently from that standpoint. And I think that, that is a little bit of a challenge without question. I think that one of the downsides of staying independent and staying, you know, not taking that outside investment. Um, The other part is, is really you know leveraging some of the networks you get sometimes when you when you take private equity money or you 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 sell to a larger competitor right And in our industry right now is going through tremendous consolidation all the businesses that we started with when I get when I joined here in the late '80s early '90s there was a whole bunch of companies like us popping up around us yeah so I think part you know is interesting is is you know being independent you know with the pros and cons of being independent the other part is that we've seen a lot of consolidation in our industry and being one of the few independents of our size left is, I think, helped us. So a lot of the people, the, when I got into the business in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a whole bunch of us in the region, similar size, you know, jumping into the RCM business. And to this day, you know, I think the seven or eight biggest competitors that I had, you know, have all either sold out or gone out of business. And, you know, and they've and that's where the, you know, A lot of it was consolidation. There's been a lot of influence from uh, internationally on our industry, too. So really changed things. So I think the other flip side of us and the reason we've committed to being independent is it gives us a little bit of a competitive advantage in a market where everybody is is got some investment from somebody and some different different approaches uh, and different uh, obligations, I guess.
0: Your competitors now you're competing with national and international size uh, firms.
1: Yeah. I mean, is everybody, you know, in our industry, you know, there's the Athenas and the Optums of the world, right? Everybody sees them and we compete against them. It's different. I mean, you know, we're different animals. If you, if you're going to work with an independent company like us, you're probably not going to work with Athena, but we also do support sites that work with those practice with those vendors and ourselves. And then there is still a chunk of there's not a lot of startups in our business. If you notice, RCM startups, there was a bunch in the in the 90s and 2000s. And, and I think everybody's realized it's become, because it's become so you know regulated and, and reimbursements have shrunk. And we talk about value-based health and so on. I think a lot of people have not gotten into the business, but a lot of the big, big competitors have bought up all the small competitors, right? That, you know, if it's NextGen or Allscripts or, or whoever it is, they're all getting into the revenue cycle world. But it is, it is, uh, yeah. And then there's also a huge investment push from india right india's got a big there's a lot of india-based billing services that has really pushed on and we use some offshore resources but in a much different capacity than than that as well but but uh, yeah it, it, it's changed the landscape dramatically
0: landscape uh, for um rcm businesses has changed and 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 then the landscape for your clients has changed as well so in the time that you've been involved in the business seen an awful lot of consolidation both with practices consolidating so your mom and pop or your 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 doc with a black bag is kind of gone most primary care docs don't don't function outside of a of a, of a group these days whereas in the 90s that was still a thing that you know you could see and as well as insurers have been consolidating uh, especially since health reform ha- has occurred so Talk about talk about your typical client. Uh, who who are you working with these days?
1: Yeah, and I so we you know our, our clients vary from still independent practices all the way up to hospital owned and ambulatory surgical centers. And, and our typical client is probably a practice physician practice can be can be can be hospital owned, can be private equity owned. That's a that's a a new you know change in the last three to five years, right? And, um, and they're typically probably 50 million or less in revenue. So we have some that are still some single docs, two doc practices that do, you know, that are smaller, but our, you know, our typical site now is pushing, you know, 10 to 15 million in revenue and, up. primarily because of our focus has been in specialty care. We do a lot of orthopedics, a lot of ophthalmology and a lot of ambulatory surgical centers. And then we do a whole bunch of other specialty driven you know, pulmonary and general surgery, bariatrics, things like that, and less primary care than we did to, you know, today we, we used to do a lot of primary care in the nineties, Right, we had these, you know, a lot of independent practices, right. To your point and the, really the bulk of the consolidation has been on the primary care side, you know, not some yeah. other side, it's some specialties, but cardiology and cardiology and primary care, I think is where we've seen the biggest uh, effect on our business where they both, most of them consolidated or been hospital owned at that point. But, um, but we do, uh, you know, we, we do hospital contracts, but primarily all outpatients. So we don't typically get involved with inpatient medical billing. It's all, you know, outpatient based practices and a lot of specialty care driven. Okay.
0: Yeah. My, my, I guess I would say I would have to temper my observation by saying it's mostly uh, you can still, uh, or you still see um, some specialties out there. One man, one woman shops, there. right You're
1: there. Yeah,
0: but it's but it's not the primary. Primary care has pretty much all been consolidated.
1: It's my yeah, I mean, or, yeah. We are there. A few? I still have eight or nine independent primary cares. Believe it or not. no kidding. Yeah, okay, either single, just one, one or two. Yeah, yeah, two docs, maybe a nurse practitioner or PA or a couple of nurse practitioners. So they're around. Um, they're all part of these large organ. They're not. They're independently. They're still, you know, self-employed technically, but they're part of large PHOs or IPAs. That's the only way you're okay. surviving. Um, but yeah, that, but there's not a lot of that. There's less of that all the time, I think is the, the main point. Yeah.
0: So why do they reach out to you?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. so they, they will come to us for, for various reasons. And I think well, sometimes it's, it's technology, right? Their, their systems internally are failing and they need help with technology because we do offer technology solutions as well as rev cycle solutions. But more often than not they're, they're coming to us because their financial performance is poor right So their receivables are high, their average payment per claim is low. they've got issues with you know timely filings and, and coding and compliance. So there's and I would say the other reason that they would come to us is staffing. they can't find the healthcare market even today is still the most competitive employment market I think in the country. <laughs> right? There's a lot of, it's hard to find people that understand the revenue cycle in our world, right? And if you can't develop them yourselves, yourself, you're not going to have the talent. There's a lot of sites, they're not fine, performing financially. The other big pieces, do they have the talent or can they find the talent to do it internally, right? And there's not a lot of RCM talent in this region, in this country, quite frankly. And so a lot of times they'll come to us and say, look, we, we just can't develop our staff. We can't find the right people to do it. We can't scale." So as practices consolidate, and this is happening a lot in ophthalmology and orthopedics, they need they need stronger skill sets to run the revenue cycle billing department. Right when it was two or three providers, almost you know it's a lot easier to manage. Now that you've got 20 providers and you're running a multi-million dollar business, you need a lot different skill set to keep your, your revenue cycle on you know, um, on track. And and a lot of that now ties. To, it's not just collecting the claims it's making sure you're scheduling correctly it's making sure that you're maximizing your your eligibility and your check-in process so there's a whole bunch of pieces that come to it so for us it's 90% of the reasons are staffing and financial performance i would say is the reason we get a call
0: can you help me out for a minute cuz this will be great for for my teacher yeah. what are accounts receivable and why is it a problem if it's too high
1: yeah so, in, in, and this is, you know, accounts receivable ultimately in the healthcare world are your outstanding claims to insurance and patients, right? Okay. So in, in, in my world, our receivables are my invoices to the clients. In the healthcare world, it's all your claims submitted to the insurance and your outstanding patient balances. And in an ideal world, you want that to be about 35 days of your work, you know, 35 to 40 days of your work. So if you figure out an average day, you generate X dollars, multiply that by 40 and your receivables should be ideally less than that. Right. And then, and, and what ends up happening is with the complex regulations, new requirements, a lot of things around medical necessity now, and so on the, the it gets complex. If you can't, if you're not getting your claims out correctly, you're not going to get paid. The payers have no, you know, they're not going to get push a claim through be just because they like you. Like in the old days, you could, you know, you could call them and they'd push a claim through nowadays. There's a lot more work that goes into it. So, so if your receivables are growing, that means you're just leaving, you know, In some cases, tens of thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands, in some cases, you know, millions of dollars sitting in on the books that should be collectible money. And nowadays with practice margins shrinking, it doesn't matter what specialty you're in, um, their margins are all shrinking. So every penny counts. And and a three or four or 5% improvement in the receivables is substantial money. It's the difference between having a successful year and not for a lot of these practices.
0: So you talked a minute ago about some of the things you're doing. So aside, aside from, you know, managing you know, helping manage the billing itself. You talked about scheduling and some other stuff, which really gets into operations more. It's not just it's not just hey, send us your bills and or you know send us your um, your your encounter data and we'll turn it into a bill and send it out for you. Yeah. Uh, this sounds like there's a lot more. You are deeper into their businesses than than that.
1: So, yeah, this is the uh, the revenue cycle ecosystem, and you'll see us right. use that term a lot um, on our marketing material on our website. Is it used to be revenue cycle was focused on the back end. Your job was to get the claim and get it paid. But right now, for us, I would say half of our work is on the front end, um, meaning that we want you know more than half, probably you know probably closer to sixty or seventy percent, is to make sure that they're gathering the right information. You know, are they taking ch- the patients' insurance information? Are they making sure the patient's eligible? Are they collecting the copay? Are they collecting the right amounts? Um, are they clinically documenting correctly? Right. 20 years ago, I didn't, it wasn't my, you know, I wasn't worried about whether or not the doc and the provider, you know, had a clear documentation in their note, but now so many claims are reviewed because of EHR, that information's there. So we support our clients on that piece, right? So when we think about the ecosystem, it's front end, registration, eligibility, copay collection, you know, the scheduling piece, and then you go to the clinical piece, which is the, you know, the documentation, the coding, are the providers documenting and billing for everything they should. You'd be surprised how many practices... You know, leave off services that are actually payable services and then include services that you you have to clean out because they're not not billable services. So those two pieces ultimately result in the back end and more and more of our work um, gets shifted to those first two that, you know, the scheduling and the clinical and less on the back end piece all along. And we've developed technology and worked with vendors to push our focus to the front end to make sure that we're getting clean claims out, which in turn helps the insurance companies. If they're getting a clean claim, they don't have to manually review or do whatever it, it keeps their makes it much cleaner for them. And then you get paid quicker. And that's the, that's the key part here. So
0: And that reduces the
1: accounts receivable, reduces the receivable, reduces cost for everybody. And and yeah. really keeps it, you know, keeps the practice running efficiently.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about kind of that front end portion, um, of your business, are you? Do you put people physically in the practices to help them with that process, or how does that work? Yeah, or we do. Are yeah. you providing them technology?
1: Yeah, we. Part of our approach is pretty modular, and we will. We have. Uh, you know, we have full service, which is, means we're doing all aspects of your of your revenue cycle, um, and then we have pieces. Uh, you know that we'll we'll pick up chunks here and there. So we will go. We will have people on site if need be. That's typically in larger practices. Um, we will offer technology if they need it. You know, we we provide a, a scheduling and, and billing platform if set practices don't already have one to interface with their EMR. And then we will, you know, also bring in, you know, an analytics reporting tool, which is more back end. But the other big piece that we bring into all of our sites now is a rules engine. So we have a we partnered, we're actually the first customer for this company. I'll give them a their their free marketing plug out of a company called RCX Rules out of Burlington, Vermont. Great friend of ours. There were, it, there were a bunch of guys that were had been part of idx which is a big software company out of burlington vermont for years got into this company and and had been running this company for a while and growing it but we were actually their first customer and it's a front-end rules-based technology so it scrubs Prior to the claim even getting created and going to the payer, it scrubs the claim to make sure it's accurate. So we we have thousands of edits from payer edits to 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 custom edits built into it. So we will, you know, we know if Doctor Jones sees patients on Tuesday at the office in Derry, he can't bill. You know, his X-rays are not billable, or you know, various things like that. Or we know that Doctor Jones should never be in Derry on a Tuesday. So if something shows up with Doctor Jones being in Derry on a Tuesday, let it fail the claim and we'll take a look at it. So so we invested a, a, a lot of resources and, and people talent into that piece, and it allows us to really get the front end claim piece super clean before it even gets into our system and even gets to the payer. And that's the biggest, I think, industry change. And you'll see the bigger competitors have things similar. It's really the focus, right? Because in, in the RCM industry, if you're chasing the claim on the back end, you're losing money, usually. Right. There's not because managing denials and managing AR is is a costly, cumbersome process still to this day. I mean, it'll get better, I think, as we talk about AI and everybody pushes through some of the, the ability for 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 automation there. Um, and we've done some. But but yeah, really, the point the focus is on that front end rules and edits system that allows us to get the claim clean and give feedback to the provider. We can give them a dash where they can see hey, these five patients I didn't document. You know what my services were or the diagnosis doesn't warrant the procedure did I include everything I did and so on
0: that's kind of the more of the back end right that's more of the back end the, the feedback about how you documented it. that's it is it's, that the,
1: it's right after the clinical so it's before it gets to the insurance company so it's in that ecosystem middle of the ecosystem ultimately
0: okay so middle yeah so, okay so you're providing the physicians and the and other providers feedback about how they're coding and what they're choosing and hey you could have did you know did you do this because this could if you add that code it would right it would increase the in value is
1: that the is that an accurate yeah, making sure that they have it documented that they're they're billing for what they document and the document for what they bill right i mean that's the key piece and and making sure that they're covering all their 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 basis and and and, and um and capturing what they can appropriately
0: so as president what is uh, uh what are your what's what's a day in the life Ryan these days look like. Yeah. You know, what do you do what do you do to to with the business?
1: Yeah, my day in my a day in my life today was different than it was 3 weeks ago, I will assure you. <laughs> That's uh, true. Uh, prior to, you know, we will go back 3 or 4 weeks, but for me it's a, you know, and I get a quick typical day is I would start my day by a bunch of quick 30 minutes or 45 minutes of current events, what's going on in the healthcare world, from modern medicine and a bunch of different subscriptions i have i'll quickly peruse articles see what's popping up there obviously news you know your normal news feeds and so on just understand um, nationally what's happening in healthcare, and then locally from mur to the globe and things that are in the region that really have an impact on it um, and then there's a whole bunch of other subscriptions so that for me that's part of my role the other part is obviously checking you know i'll i'll depending on the day of the week i may have a leadership meeting already scheduled where we'll talk about you know strategy for that week making sure we stay on target um, I'm also looking at metrics every day. So we have a robust analytics package. So part of my, when I'm drinking my coffee is to look at our dash and see where we're, you know, we quickly know where we are on target or not on target. Are we behind in this, you know, payment posting? Are we, are we ahead here? Are we, you know, where are things falling? How are our clients trending? So that's a, you know, a chunk of my every morning for me, the rest of the day may vary from, from business development roles where I may be meeting with large practices where I get called in to be kind of the last, you know, the last, uh, The glass closer, I guess, in in those cases, maybe key client meetings. I still have a, I'm the executive sponsor for a group of our core business clients. Um, And then obviously networking and and that piece. And then the other part is really just continuing to develop the strategy of the business, right? And 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 work, you know, making sure that I understand everything that's going on around us. I mean, I think that's the biggest, biggest part of my role is what are our competitors doing? What's the industry doing? What's, you know, in this world today, what's value-based healthcare you know, impacting us. So a lot of my time is spent in that area. And then, and then ultimately being the, the, the little bit of the face of the business, right? Whether or not it's, it's, you know, promoting our brand, you know, in the community or LinkedIn or whatever it might be. I think that's a, a big role, part of my role. So talk a little bit about the
0: structure of your organization. Like you, You're a president. Uh, you It's a mature business now. Yes. What is the organizational structure of the, uh, of the business?
1: Yeah. And if you spent a day with us, you maybe not know that we, we wouldn't think we're mature. We have a lot of fun. Let's <laughs> well, uh, go from a business standpoint. But, you know, so, you know. You know, mentally, I'm not sure we're all mature, but the, uh, we have some fun, but so right now, you know, we have a chief, my CIO, right. Chief information officer, charge of technology, new products, um, integration, maximizing our products. So he, he reports to me, chief marketing officer, right. And, And when we say marketing for us, it's about communication internally and to our clients. We don't do a lot of external marketing other than we're not, our sales is really driven through channels, but so chief CMO, VP of Client Services, that role, you know, the role that I had years ago. And that's a big, you know, and there's actually seven or eight people in that department now. Our controller, obviously, financially reports to me. um, Recently, a VP of Ops that's going to run all of our operations. And then our senior advisor in business development. So those are the key roles right now that report to me. And, And I think, you know, ultimately, that's aside from, a, you know, I think that's every role that reports to me. Yeah. All right. How many,
0: how many, uh employees are you uh working with these days yeah so we will roughly.
1: you know at the end of this month we'll have 81 on staff here and then we have another 70 contracted so we're you know we're up to about 150 um we we partner with a couple of companies one out of Salt so Lake City, utah that we use for some back-end functions and then they then and then another one that does a little bit of india-based offshore support as well and on basic functions like you know manual payment posting if we have to deal with that things like that so
0: we mentioned at the uh, at the beginning that uh, we are in a in a unique time, and hopefully we won't be in this unique time for too much longer. Uh, but how is how is the how is the COVID nineteen threat affecting uh, PRL and your business, your day to day operations? You know yeah. what what's you know beyond the obvious personal risks. What's the what's the impact on?
1: Yeah, interesting enough, and, and I, you know, haven't been here a long time. I've lived through H1N1. I've seen you know 9/11. You and I, you know, market crashes, healthcare reform, right? Obamacare. All these things that they thought were going to have huge impacts on our business, and we've been, our world has always been fairly isolated, right? If I see a three or four percent drop in our revenue or something like that, it, it's because of outside influences. It, it's you know aside from competition, it would be rare. This this is a different animal for us probably 75% of our practices have either closed or cut their resources, you know, laid off most of their staff and only have, you know, if they were a 20 doc practice, they have two docs working, right. And those two docs aren't working anywhere near capacity. So we, you know, we've got an interesting ride for the next couple of months. Um, and we, you know, we, in, you know, you know, our staff is, is well aware of it. it's going to be, a it's going to be challenging primarily because, you know, routine you think about all the routine surgeries and we do a lot of orthopedics and a lot of ophthalmology and a lot of ambulatory surgical centers all of our surgery centers are closed Ophthalmologies not really treating patients unless it's urgent primarily because of the way the disease is is you know is carried and they can't get the protective gear uh, that they need right and then orthopedics is the same they're not doing any elective surgery most of these ors are closed for at least the you know from from an elective standpoint for the next two months it looks like at least until june so we're the good news is we're getting a chance to focus on internal projects really cleaning up our receivables for our clients because the, the way the industry works is we always have a backlog you know 60 days of receivables for our clients right because you're waiting for payers to process and so on so there's still money to be collected we're using it as a time to really develop a, develop some internal staffing and really clean up some key projects that we hadn't had a chance to get to so it's it's having an impact and, I, and it's you know I would say singly the most challenging leadership time that I've had, it was since I've been to this company, and I think you—if know, you talk to a lot of business leaders in, in various industries, doesn't matter if it's restaurants or healthcare—that I think they're all feeling things that they've never had to deal with, from the hotel industry all the way through. Right? We're all getting uh, some substantial impact from this.
0: Well, let's transition and talk a little bit about leadership. Mm. What would you say is your leadership philosophy?
1: Yeah, for me, it's 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 pretty simple: hire the right people, give them the right tools, and give them the freedom to do their job, and at the same time, push them to to continually develop. I've been fortunate enough to have a leadership group that's been with me for a long time. In most cases, a couple that have, as we grow, we've brought in. But for me, it's just, it's, if you get the right people, the rest of it kind of takes care of itself. And that's the hardest part, right? I think, but, and then just giving them the freedom to do their job and the tools they need is the key part. So that's the way I've looked at it for the last, I've gotten better at it. Early on, that was, you, you change your approach And in, in the last 10 or 12 years, I've been, you know, we've been incredibly fortunate to find the right people and it makes my life a lot easier.
0: Do you have a leader that you admire that maybe you've tried to model after?
1: Uh, it's interesting. You know, it's, if you ask yes, my staff, I always, um, it's funny. I always quote Churchill, but I don't know that I, you know, I, I whatever, you know, um, I don't just you know, I, I definitely admire him, but it is funny. You know, if you get, last few years, it's one of the people that I, I think I glean a lot from, and I follow a lot is, is Mark Cuban, who I think is, he's a different kind of leader. He's edgy and he, but one of the things I've always admired about him is he's always people first. He's always business first, and he's not afraid to speak his mind, so I would you know he's somebody that i've I've spent a lot of time following the last few years just because I've enjoyed the way he approaches it. He's done some things that I wish he wouldn't have done, but but uh, yeah. but it it is interesting, yeah
0: What characteristics do you think make a good leader?
1: Yeah, I think it it yields several things, right, and I think if you think about you know our values for me, it's always integrity, right Being comfortable in your own skin being open, right? I think a lot of leaders feel like they can't show their emotions and can't when and not be, you know, be fully transparent. And I've maybe to a fault, but I don't think so. I've always been open, very open with our staff. I think that's a key part. When we bring people in here and look for new leaders, we want them to be one comfortable communicating and not and and showing their emotions and not being afraid to say, hey, I made a mistake and I'm I apologize for it and I'll fix it. I think the other piece is is fail is not being afraid to fail. Right. And I had that opportunity in, in just with my upbringing, I got a lot of opportunity to, to kind of spread my wings. And I think the biggest thing I find now with new leaders in, I think, some of the younger generation is a little bit of that fear of failure, right? And I think that as a leader, you have to be comfortable with failure or it really handcuffs you. So we look for people that have, you know, when we do interviews and we talk about it, if someone tells me that if, if they can't come up with a couple of really major failures along the way in their management career, tells me that they probably have, aren't someone's going to fit here anyway. We want people that have learned from their mistakes and made some, hopefully nothing, you know, that life threatening, but some, some substantial mistakes, right? I mean, that's part of it. So we, that's really, when I, when I get to sit down and interview for somebody that that's one of the first questions and, you know, we just went through with our VP ops and that's what attracted me to him is he, his life lessons were pretty substantial and his management lessons were pretty substantial. And I think that makes a good leader. I think you being creative and and not being afraid to to take that risk, I think is the key part for me on that side. And we're not afraid to pivot quickly, which means if we put something in place or we change an operational flow or we change a you know, a new, add a new service, you have to, and if I, if it was my decision, I have to be comfortable. And as a leader, you have to be comfortable saying that was a mistake, right? And not being not, you know, don't let your pride get in the way. Right. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is you got to be comfortable pivoting. So those are for me, it's it's. If you look at our company goals, it's integrity, commitment, and innovation, and a lot of those communications part of that, and, and you know, risk and so on. So,
0: you talked about the importance of learning from from failure. So, uh, one of the questions I like to ask is, can you give an example of a difficult leadership lesson that you have had to learn the hard way?
1: Yeah, I think and. and if, I could give you several, but uh, but I'll give you, and in, and in, in I do this a few times. I think you know as I was learning to be whether or not it was in the the manage you know the billing manager role or the RCM director primarily, and then into the president's role. For me, it was about the single biggest lesson I learned several times was not having those difficult conversations. Right. So I, so someone maybe wasn't performing at the level they should be or didn't handle the situation the way I felt they would be, and you know, and I held back and didn't share my, my feedback on that. Right. And I think that's the biggest, I think it's the biggest thing any young leader should keep in mind is right. It's, you gotta be, you have to have those uncomfortable conversations and by not having them, you're actually hurting yourself and hurting that, that other person in the long run. And I think that for me was the hard. you know, it's the hardest thing to learn, right? Cause no one, no one enjoys, you, you learn how to tolerate them, but you don't really enjoy Nobody, I think, ever enjoys those conversations. Um, so you have to get comfortable doing that. And I think that was the biggest thing because I lost, you know, over the years probably lost a couple of good people because we didn't have those candid conversations.
0: You've talked uh, you made a kind of a joke about, about maybe it's a mature business, but, but you don't, you wouldn't know that you were mature, I think. Yeah. And so I, my sense is here, you're kind of saying you have a particular culture yeah. in your organization. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you've tried to cu- cultivate that culture?
1: Yeah, we focused in, and I, and I, I think we're better at it. We're never at the level I want us to be, right? I think you can always get better at that piece. Um, for us, it's about open. We one of the one of the things I always suggest to everybody that comes in here as, a, as an, a, an employee or a leader or whatever it might be is, you know, we've we've spent a lot of time on like the Five Dysfunctions of a Team book, right? And everybody. Oh, great, Lencioni, good good book. Yeah, and and I think it's almost a little bit of a you know a, a Bible on how you approach things. But for me, it's it's having a culture where everybody everybody assumes leaders have to hold everybody accountable. We, we're we trying to build an environment here where everybody holds everybody accountable, right? Co-workers and so on. And and they're, everybody's comfortable saying, hey, that's not probably, you know, we all should keep each other in line in and, and, and both ways, right? We want people to be comfortable coming to a leader and saying, hey, I think you could do that a little differently and a little better in this way, right? And, and delivering it the right way in professional manner is key part. But really an open communication, we have a lot of people that work really, really hard. And part of that is also balancing that with fun. So we we built a culture around that, you know, I would say accountability, open communication and accountability both ways, right. To peer to peer leadership to, 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 to team and then team up to leadership. The other part is the community involvement piece. We've really pushed that. It's been a part of what I've done for the last 20 years, probably anyway, but as a company now we've gone to the point of putting in paid uh, volunteer time. We've really pushed our staff. We created a volunteer committee and they've been tremendous, um, just keeping up and supporting things like Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and and Boys and Girls Club and, and Marguerite's place and and others, I'm sure are missing, but we do a bunch of we we do a lot around that piece. And I do feel, and I and I always have, is every company has an has a responsibility to the community. And we're we're building that within our staff. And I think by giving everybody paid time off to do it, it really shows our commitment to it. So that's part of the other piece of the culture we're building.
0: I want to ask about mentorship. Mm. What what does a good mentor do and and did you have mentors coming up through your um, through your career?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I w- so the I'll answer the second question first. So yes, I had from from my standpoint, and I'll go back and you and you uh, to really it was my grandfather and part of what I. He was always comfortable speaking his mind, always. and He was a, a self-taught businessman. So he really guided me, I think, in a lot of ways and instilled a lot of characteristics in me that I still have to this day. And I, so I'd say he was a big piece of it. Um, and part of it is just being a, with all these mentors is just being a sounding board, uh, being able to give you candid feedback and say, hey, Brian, that's really not a great idea or that's not the way to do it or that is a great idea. I would say, without question, my, my mother-in-law has, has been tremendous. I mean we've, we've uh, you know working in a family business is a different challenge. I think there's a reason that you can actually get a degree in family business now, right or they teach you know, that track at some schools it, It's a different dynamic, and, and she was a tremendous you know influence on on me, and I think primarily because she let me try things and fail and develop and, and I don't think the company would be where it is today with all of that. but I would say yeah, those are probably the two biggest.
0: Let's talk for a second. I, I I haven't asked you enough about the family business aspect of this. Yeah. Like, how was your experience? How has your career been different because you were in a family business? Uh, when did you marry your wife?
1: Uh, so we got married in '94. So I yeah.
0: Okay. I so, I so you've been part of the family for I mean, it was like two years, and then and then mm-hmm. you were so you were not only um working for your mother-in-law but you were having sunday dinner
1: as well with sure. with your boss and sometimes friday and saturday dinner uh, <laughs> yeah so in and, and to take you back a little bit you know i grew up in a family right family dairy farm and i would okay. have been fourth generation of that family dairy farm so i you know and that was that included grant you know my parents um uncles aunts everybody so i i had and I don't know if it was in my blood and I just subconsciously ended up in another family business. I'm not sure how that, ended, how that worked, but it is, a, it's a different dynamic, right? And you have the biggest thing, and, and it, I would say it's similar to working with friends and family, right? You have to be able to separate business and professional, and that's not easy. I mean, especially in a growing business, if you're working you know 12, 14 hour days and you're doing that six days a week and, you, and you're grinding through everything and you see each other every day and then you go home and have dinner together it's a different dynamic, right? And, and you have to be, you have, again, it goes back to being comfortable having candid conversations and setting bounds and saying, look, when we have dinner, we're not talking business, right? Or we all go on vacation together. We don't talk business, right? I mean, you gotta, or you do talk business depending on how you approach it, but you have to set boundaries on it. So that, I think that was the biggest thing. And it's, and it's, uh, it's weird because it does get in your blood and it'll be interesting to see, you know, I have two boys, uh, interesting to interested where they end up you know, in the, in the scheme of things here too, one, you know, ones in college and one's in high school, but it, it's, it's a different dynamic, but it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: Well, let me close on this then. Um, uh, so, you know, I teach an undergrad program we've talked about. It. We've got a lot of young folks interested in finance. So for a young person thinking about a career in, in healthcare, why should they think about a career in health finance and specifically revenue cycle?
1: Yeah, I think it's, the world's evolving in in Recycle, right? We're talking value based healthcare, and, it, and it's pushing in a whole different direction. There's a there's an opportunity if you're not going to be clinical. There's a huge opportunity to have an impact on our healthcare industry in so many ways, and I, it's a it's a growing industry. It's an industry that's finally catching up technology wise with the rest of the world, right? Healthcare has always been a little bit behind technology wise and process wise, and it's being forced. and I, And I think this even through this most recent COVID crisis, I think is forcing us to adopt technology quicker and adopt you know, processes quicker. So I think it's, you, know, you have an opportunity in, in this business to meet some really in, in, you know, incredible people and, and be part of something that it feasibly is cutting, potentially saving substantial money for the healthcare system and, and providing businesses with these independent practices and even these possible own practices with the ability to thrive you know, in a challenging environment.
0: Brian, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate
1: it. Absolute pleasure. I appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.